Welcome to Travels Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with ACE Cultural Tours. I'm Artemis Irvin, and in today's episode, we meet an extraordinary couple whose lifelong partnership and dual creativity changed the face of Britain's arts and crafts movement. If it's ever been possible to come up with a philosophy for how to live, William Morris came pretty close. He once said that the true secret of happiness lies in taking a genuine interest in all the details of daily life. It's a beautiful sentiment and it's one that makes even more sense when you learn more about his family and the home he created with his wife, Jane. Suzanne Fagence Cooper is a writer, lecturer and curator working on 19th and 20th century British art, design and culture. Suzanne has spent 12 years as a curator and research fellow studying the Victorian collections of the V&A Museum. She's written extensively on the Pre-Raphaelites and Victorian women, and she's worked as a historical consultant with Ralph Fiennes for his film about Charles Dickens, The Invisible Woman. Her latest book, How We Might Live, is published by Quercus. So, as you can imagine, it was an absolute delight to get to speak to Suzanne just last week. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us today on Travels Through Time. I'm so excited to talk to you about this really beautiful book that you've written. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. You're also here in your capacity as a tour guide for Ace Cultural Tours. And I wanted to talk to you a bit about that. Could you tell listeners a bit about some of the tours that you run for Ace and yeah, what, they, what they're like? Well, I've been very fortunate um, because I'm an art historian. I can take small groups of people to art galleries and historic houses um, and also give sort of background lectures to what we're seeing. Um, so there have been a couple that are coming up this summer that I'm really looking forward to. I'm going to Sussex um, to uh, to show people Charleston, which is the Bloomsbury House and Monk's House, which is where Virginia Woolf lived. Um, and then we also get to go to this wonderful place um, where uh, Lee Miller, who's a surrealist photographer, lived with her husband, um, uh, uh, Roland Penrose. So um, that is quite unusual to be able to go to their um, to their farmhouse um, because it's uh, quite often we get to meet her son as well. And he talks about his mother's photography and the collection of surrealist objects um, at Farley's farm. So that's um a real treat and just seeing the landscape as well to to be able to talk about artists like Revilius, Eric Revilius, who worked down near Lewis um, at a little uh, little house called Furlongs, which belonged to a friend. So you get the, the, the benefit of seeing the environment in which they were working, um, the little maybe we go to see churches, we go to see um, beautiful landscapes, and then that all kind of brings everything into place. Before we get started, you're here to talk about your new book, How We Might Live. So this is a really beautiful book, How We Might Live. I, I love that title for it. I wanted to ask you about when you were writing it and when you were researching it, there's a kind of, it kind of presents a philosophy for life. William Morris and Jane Morris had a philosophy for life. Did you find yourself being influenced by that or wanting to take that on when you were writing it? I think it? the big story that comes out of this is the, is the story of a marriage and a partnership and that they both brought very different things to the marriage and it wasn't always easy going for them but that they um, they had this vision of a, a society where people of different classes could 
could meet and, and fall in love. They had a vision of society where work and pleasure actually overlap, that, you know, the enjoyment of your work, that's what art is, whether it's even in very small elements, you know, Morris is very keen on the sort of the domestic being being elevated, that you enjoy the, the I mean, I think he said the true happiness lies in taking a, uh, an interest in the details of daily life. And so not, not going for the big picture, going for, you know, just enjoying your house and your garden. And I think that that interplay between the inside and the outside also comes across very strongly when you read their letters. They're always looking out of the window or stepping into the garden and telling each other about, you know, the blossom in the trees or the apples that are coming through or, you know, what the weather is like. So there's a real sense of the outdoors as well, which I hadn't expected. I, I'd expected to write about the interiors, you know, the wallpaper and the and the wall hangings and, 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 and the tables, but actually so much of their conversations and the time they spent with friends was outdoors and that need for the green that need for green space I think is is the thing that comes through in Morris's writings that the natural world is is a place that we we rely on for our own well-being and for him he want you know the way he designed you know when he is designing wallpapers he's trying to get the feel of a of a, of, a, of a tree or a, a, a the way a tendril uh, sort of flows across the uh, across the, the design um, he has that real sensitivity to the natural world which I think is why people still enjoy you know living with his works of art living with his designs absolutely yeah it's such a it's such a wonderful tonic for modern life as well isn't it that engagement with the yes natural and he world. was so conscious of that because he was he was a an entrepreneur um, he was involved in, he was co really conscious of the industrialization and the urbanization of Britain in the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. And he could see that it was turning, it was making men into slaves to the machine, really. He didn't dislike using machinery, but he wanted labor saving uh, machinery to, you know, so when he set up his factories, um, yes, it was, you know, it was hard physical work sometimes. There was a garden, there were allotments, there was a river, um, and there was a sense of community among the uh, among the working people as well. Um, and often he would take workers who were he had uh, who had been destitute. He didn't think that you needed to be born an artist; you could be trained to be an artist. And I think there's also that sense that everybody should have access to this beauty. That you know, for for both Jane and and Morris, you know bringing people, gathering people, giving them access to poetry and beautiful things. That was really important. He enjoyed um, the act of, of, of making stuff and lifting stuff and heaving stuff. So he, he can't see a problem with that kind of physical work. And the seasonal work, he loves the change in the seasons, but I don't know whether he really understood poverty. I don't think he ever understood the poverty of not, and, and I think that's, it's something even today, isn't it, that it's really hard to imagine what it is like not to be able to look look ahead and think, I haven't got enough money to get me through to Christmas. I haven't got enough resources. We're going to be cold. We're going to be hungry. Um, and you know, for Morris, that was that really didn't he could see it, but he couldn't feel it. I think he, he kept trying to think, you know, as a, as a socialist, he kept thinking that, yeah, he wanted everyone to have a a life like his and Jane's. He wanted everyone to have a collect, you know, some nice things and enough food on the table. Um, 
And he was adamant about that and absolutely committed as a socialist. But yes, there is this sort of, there is a romanticization about, about the countryside, um, which he shared with many, many writers and, 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 and radicals in his day. It's fascinating and um, yeah, really interesting couple. I'm really excited to kind of delve into a year and their life together um, in just a moment. Before we go to your chosen year, I wanted to talk a bit more specifically about Jane um, because she is the heroine of the book in a way. Could you tell us a little bit about what Jane Morris's life had been like up until the year that we're going to be travelling to today? Yes, so Jane Morris, she was born Jane Burden in Oxford, in a a very poor part of Oxford. Um, We can see on maps that there was cholera in that area, that her big sister died of uh, tuberculosis. It's uh, an area now which is quite touristy. It's uh, near the Turf Tavern and just off Hollywell Street. But she, um, we can follow her, her trail through census records and things like that, that she always lived in the in the kind of back alleys off Hollywell Street, um, next to pubs, next to commercial premises. So the the places where she was living were were very cramped. Um, must have been difficult to keep clean. Um, there would be a lot of smoke. There would be a lot of noise. Um, not very sanitary. So that is her experience of Oxford. You know, right slap bang next to places like New College and Wadham College. You know, close to. Uh, the meadows, she, she, there were very, very small snippets that she, you know, like these, these little hints that she drops about her, her childhood, that she loved going and watching the, the boats, the narrow boats going along the canal, for example, or she would walk across the bridge and collect violets uh, beyond, uh, beyond Magdalen College. So, you know, there's always a sense that she wanted to get out, also a sense that she wanted to read. You know, she says she was trying, she reads every scrap that comes her way, that's always been her habit because she probably would have gone to effectively a primary school. She could read. Her mother, however, could not. So we have to remember she's coming from uh, a family background. We know her mother, when she got married, could not sign her name on the marriage certificate. She just has a cross there. So, you know, she's coming from a background where her mother probably couldn't teach her to read. um, And certainly it wasn't a place where poetry, history, art, design, you know, travel would have been the main focus, you know, her father was working in a stables. He was um, an ostler, which is a, a stable man. So he was looking after horses and her mother, we're not quite sure. We think she was probably a laundress um, working for one of the colleges in Oxford. And certainly by the age of 16, 17, which is when we, we start to see Jane coming into focus, she would have been out working um, probably as a college servant. So she would have been um, expected to be presentable and responsible and, you know, grown up at the age of 17. Mm. And she comes into contact with the young men studying at the university, Dante, Gabriel Rossetti, and eventually William Morris. There's this moment in 1857 when uh, Gabriel Rossetti, who had already established his name as one of the original pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, he's gathered this group of new young men, slightly younger men around him, including Edward Byrne-Jones, who was already working as a stained glass designer, illustrator, and uh, William Morris. And both Byrne-Jones and Morris have recently left Oxford. Uh, They had been training to be priests, but they decided in their last year they wanted, as they said, to devote their lives to art. So they've set themselves up in London and they've gone back to Oxford for a summer summer jaunt, really, to paint um, murals in the Oxford Union. But they're looking for a woman to star as uh, Queen Guinevere in this set of murals. And they see her. They see this woman with amazing, lush, 
crispy black hair and very strong profile, very strong eyebrows at the theatre. And I, re- I think the reason they spot her is because she's taken her bonnet off. And they, uh, Rossetti and Byrne Jones basically try to pick her up after the theatre and ask her to model. And she's very reticent. I mean, she has a, her younger sister with her for a start, Bessie Burden. Now, no respectable young woman would accept that offer. It just, it's out of the question. Uh, she needed to, Jane needed to maintain her character for her job. So she kind of pats them away and says, okay, 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 um, but doesn't show up. And it's not until Byrne Jones tracks her down again that, and really persuades her and says, no, this is what we're doing. And she probably shows her some drawings, probably shows her the room. Um, that's when she encounters William Morris because he's there sitting in the corner drawing and Rossetti just sits in front of Jane and examines her for hours and draws these amazing uh, portraits of her. She is such a familiar face. And that's what I've, I've been you know, bothered by for so long that we have this idea of her that comes out of the paintings by Rossetti, especially. He paints her as goddesses. He paints her as queens. He paints her as Pandora these mythological figures and always sort of slightly in, in, in a dreamy state. She always seems to be a bit tranced, entranced and a bit, a bit sad. And I just wanted to know how true that was. Yeah, absolutely. So Suzanne, that's been such a wonderful introduction to Jane and to um, her life like thus far and a bit to William and his work as well. So I think without further ado, we should, we should go to your chosen year and we should meet them. So, Suzanne, if if you could travel through time, what year would you like to travel to? I would be f- so excited to spend some time in 1862. So would you like to take us to our first scene in 1862? Where where are we and what's happening? So in March 1862, Jane has given birth to her second child, her second baby, always known as, as May. And May Morris is this wonderful little girl who tells us an awful lot as she grows up about their family relationships. Um, So Red House, where she's born, um, and she's born in the bed um, which was given to uh, William and Jane when they were married, and it became Jane's bed, and it still exists. It's in the the bedroom at Kelmscott Manor, which they took on as a a holiday home later on. Um, And that's one of the few objects in the whole house that was, um, that they they kind of brought with them. Everything else was brand new, everything else. Um, and I think that's really important about the relationship between Jane and, and William, that there is no baggage. You know, it's there's no sense that they have to kind of carry their old lives with them. His life as a middle class, very wealthy um, young man and her life as a as a a working class girl, you know, here everything is, is, is emptied out and they can begin again. So the, the house that May is born into, um, there's work going on all the time. They've got other artist friends coming down from London at the weekends. They're putting stencils on the walls. They're planting in the garden. Um, and it's this house that is built by Philip, or designed by Philip Webb in an organic Gothic style. So it seems to always grow up out of the ground and it's set in an orchard. So this garden, which uh, May and her big sister Jenny would have explored as little girls, you know, that it's full of sunflowers and roses. And there is, they build these sort of, it's really, it's really radical in the garden design. They build these sort of square, um, what they call herbers, which are, uh, uh, have got fences of, or hedges of sweet briar around them. And each one smells different. And so you can imagine this tiny little girl with people coming in and talking about poetry all the time and the stories of King Arthur, um, and then this massive dining table, two tre- te- trestle tables that were brought together for, 
for big parties and she would be sitting there and um, with these with with all these 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 people around her um, listening to descriptions of, of the plans though you know they were going to have these amazing embroideries on the walls of, of the dining room they were going to, they had made these beautiful glasses table glass that um, that Philip Webb had designed there was stained glass that was going up so for a, a little girl like that may you know as she grows up she she develops her own skills as a designer and so seeing her at the outset you know where she came from and she remembers this and when she writes her father's um, uh, well, she, she edits her father's letters and 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 writings later on she, the collective works she edits the collective works of William Morris later on and puts in essays which describe the house the family the fun they had and it's a really um, intimate portrait of of this place which was so creative you know the sense of of possibility mm. in this house yeah Jane you know, she grew up expecting to be a servant and they're living in a house now where they have four servants and this amazing kind of uh, kitchen set up and pantries and sculleries and water closets and wine cellars and it's so different to the way she grew up and also so different to her friends um, because the people these other artists who are coming down from London like Swinburne and Rossetti and Elizabeth Siddle they're living in apartments most of them have no kitchen uh, Georgie Byrne Jones when she got married had didn't have enough money to furnish her, her her flat so she used to sit on the table when people came to visit and then here there's all this sort of what they call ample space um, and, and space to, you know, build enormous tables and chairs and, uh, and settles and, and, and dresses for all the, the, the crockery and cutlery that they're acquiring. Yeah, it sounds amazing. I wanted to talk to you a bit about what the arrival of children um, in, in the house and in the marriage, um, what effect did that have on this kind of bohemian life that the couple were leading with their friends? Well, the first thing I noticed was that in preparation for the arrival of the children, the women in the circle gather together. And very often we think of the wives as all being separate. But actually at Red House, we have Emma Maddox-Brown, who's married to Ford Maddox-Brown. We have Elizabeth Sittle, who's recently married to Rossetti. We have Georgie Byrne-Jones. We have Bessie Bird and Jane's sister. They're all there. And they're all active in preparing for, you know, the, the, the sewing that has to be done, you know, all the, the just all the nappies and the, and the little shirts and, and everything that needs to be, I mean, huge numbers of things that you need to make in preparation for a baby. I mean, even now, but these all had to be handmade. So there's a sense of, of community of women, which I think is really important, which we tend to overlook. And most of these women, Emma Maddox-Brown, um, Elizabeth Siddle, Jane Morris, they are working class as well. And it just seeing their their distinctive characters, I think, is really important. And then, of course, you've got this issue of um, that up until then, the women, particularly uh, Jane, had been actively involved in making embroideries, um, which is very skilled and, and complex and long-term work. Um, but she has to set that aside to prepare all the, the, the layette, I suppose you would call it, for, for her babies. And Georgie Byrne Jones remembers sitting um, in the garden and seeing in the in the sewing basket this little a little shirt or something a little sort of thing that Jane has been sewing. Which and you know they hadn't discussed that they were pregnant, but it was a kind of hint that there was a baby on the way. But because the men are so involved in their design and 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 practice and poetry, and everybody else is in London, that you know from starting, you know at this project together. Uh, Georgie Byrne-Jones, I mean, it, 
she's so articulate and, and it's through her that we know so much about um, what it was like. You know, she's an extraordinary writer in, in her own case. Um, but she felt, you know, she remembers sitting the other side of the studio door and with her baby on her lap and weeping because she was excluded. You know, all the fun and noise and, and creativity going on. And, and she was sitting there with her little baby. And I think for Jane, you know, being there during the week and, and William being absent must have been, yeah, it must have been hard. I mean, it, it, it is hard. It was making me think about, it seems to me that at different points in history, in kind of bohemian art movements um, of lots of different kinds of lots of different periods and places, um, usually when they're spearheaded by men or seemingly spearheaded by men, that they can be as kind of progressive and bohemian as they want, but they're it often ends up still being a fairly uh, conventional um, kind of route for the women in those circles. And I wondered if you felt that when you were writing about this period that, you know, it's it's all very well and good saying we'll all make things together and we'll all have fun together. But then when the children arrive, I'm going to London to work and you're going to stay at home with the baby and we'll just go back to that. Um, did you feel like there was a kind of a small hypocrisy or a contradiction or what did you make of that tension between progressive bohemian and then traditional gendered roles? I think they actually did try at one point to overcome it. Um, there was a plan in 1864, so a little bit later, um, for an, ad, uh, an additional wing to be put on Red House so that Georgie and Edward Byrne-Jones and their children could come and live with right next door to William Morris and Jane. Then uh, Georgie became very ill, uh, William Morris became very ill, and Edward Byrne-Jones simply didn't have the money to build this new house. Um, so I think they, had, they were recognising that this was a problem. Um, and certainly at the end of his life, when William Morris um, is writing his socialist novels, he becomes very active in the political socialist movement. He is wrestling with, you know, how women's roles should be as um, dynamic and as uh, open to, to, to skilled work as, as men. Still, he tends to put the women, you know, in the kitchen and, and making beautiful food and hugely recognised for this. I mean, he recognises the skills in housekeeping even in his later utopian novels, it's still women's work and it's still the grandmothers actually who look after the children. Yeah, that's really interesting. Before we move on to your second scene, I wanted to dwell just a bit longer on um, on Red House because it's clearly such a kind of magical, enchanting place. And I wanted to ask you about um, a quotation from William Morris that is, is pulled out on the um, jacket of the book where he says... Um, the house that would please me would be some great room where one talked to one's friends in one corner and ate in another and slept in another and worked in another. And this is um, this is a wonderful quote. It kind of reminds me of the open plan rooms that, we're, that we are accustomed to today where you have a sort of living room, dining room and kitchen all in one great space. It's very modern. Um, how radical was that idea of living in that way for the time? Oh, hugely radical. I mean, they, they didn't put that into practice in Red House, except that some of the rooms like the studio doubled as uh, dining rooms or bedrooms. And so there was a sense of flexibility in that space quite often, particularly when they had friends to stay. People would move around or sleep on the sofa. Or, um, But I think that sense of, of having one big room and being able to divide it up into different spaces uh, for different uses really comes a bit later in Morris's thinking. He goes to Iceland in 1871, and I nearly chose 1871 as my year because I think it's, it's incredibly important, this trip to Iceland, because when he's visiting the houses there, he recognises that, yes, they, they do have this kind of space for, 
for work in the living room, you know, having creative um, labor almost in the in the living space. Yeah, and that whole that whole concept kind of makes a mockery, the idea of a work-life balance, you know, that feels like such a hollow phrase in light of, of that arrangement of living. It wasn't always easy. I mean, he did say that he would get up at, you know, before dawn and go and we start weaving a tapestry. And then, you know, it's quite exhausting to live with somebody who has that much energy and that much uh, devotion to his work. And I think that leads us on quite nicely, really, to the second scene that we're going to visit in 1862. Um, um, Would you like to tell us where we are in our second scene? Yes, so um, in May 1862, there is a really big, an international exhibition in London. Um, It follows on from the Great Exhibition uh, in 1851. And it's at this moment when all the ideas that have been kind of churning around in Red House, all the things that they've been making for the house, uh, Morris and his friends have decided that they will make uh, make these commercially available. They will set up a company, which uh, in the early days is called Morris Marshall Faulkner and Company, and that recognises the people who put money into it, and they will become interior designers. So they're sitting alongside other architects and designers who are mostly designing for churches. There's a huge boom in church building um, from the 1840s onwards. In the middle decades of the the 19th century, over 1,500 new churches were built between the 1840s and the 1870s. So this is a huge market. You know, people need stained glass. They need altar frontals. They need um, metalwork, you know, candlesticks and and pulpits and things. So that's one of the markets that Morris and company are going for. They're also going for the domestic market for textiles, um, for uh, small scale stained glass that you might want to use, like they have at Red House. So... It's, it's quite difficult to patch together what their display looked like um, because there are some photographs from that, uh, from that display, but we only kind of see things from, a si- from the side view. They're not the main, they're brand new. They're not the main event. You know, there are much more established companies there. Um, but what they are able to do then is um, they show stained glass designed by Edward Byrne-Jones for the cathedral in Oxford. They show this massive... Um, desk, which I think is quite a a useful tool for them to show what they're doing. This huge desk, um, which was designed for an architect's office. And on each door of the desk, uh, the little sort of doors that you open and close and shut for the drawers and things, they have painted different scenes and different artists have painted different scenes. So it's this idea of collaboration. It's very visible. And each scene is called the King René's honeymoon cabinet because there's a medieval story about a a king who turns his hand to all sorts of art he does architecture and sculpture and painting and so these little drawings um, little paintings show him king rene as an architect as a sculptor and so what they're trying to do there is is show off as a company all the different products they can offer and then at the top they have these little little doors that show what the women do that's cooking and gardening and weaving. Um, so they're still acknowledging the women's work there, but it's very much a secondary thing. The big things are architecture, sculpture, uh, painting. Um, and so this object is seen by the curators in the early uh, South Kensington Museum, what is now called the V&A Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum. And the curators want to buy this object, this big desk, and they can't because it's already you know, been made for somebody else. It eventually does come to the V&A uh, in the 1920s, but it's you know, much later on. But on the back of this uh, display, 
they get their first big commission. Um, they've been working for church design, um, people like architects like Bodley. So there's an amazing church, for example, in Scarborough called St. Martin's, uh, which has a, a, a real range of their objects. And that is also happening at the same time. But the curators for uh, the VNA, South Kensington Museums, as it was, they say, well, if you can't have the desk, what we want you to do is design uh, one of our cafe rooms, like one of our refreshment rooms, and it's still there. So the green dining room that they made is still the cafe at the VNA Museum. It shows how quickly their design language, their visual language is evolving. So at Red House, which is where Jane and William are still living, the designs are quite geometric, they're quite um, bold colours, very strong patterning. Whereas, you know, almost you know, just a couple of years later, when they when we, we can step inside the green dining room, everything is much softer. We have this very typical now Morris uh, sort of sage green, a bluey green. We have Burne Jones's designs for stained glass with these beautiful young women kind of moving through almost dream landscapes. Um, maybe a little sort of, maybe a little Italianate, maybe a little like medieval Belgium, um, just kind of stepping into um, a, a different landscape. And then up the walls, they're using um, quite complex um, techniques to get color and design all the way up the walls. So it looks like you're in a, you know, sitting under leaves and trees, and there are running hares and dogs around. And then Burn Jones also designs signs of the zodiac. Um, so the green dining room also shows that, you know, coming out of the 1862 exhibition, they need more people. They can't do it all themselves. So they're having to set up workshops and employ. Um, apprentices and get people who can you know make the stained glass make the you know look for suppliers for textiles so all of this becomes much more real and much you know bigger scale William Morris especially is you know having to devote more time to traveling finding suppliers talking to clients selling it's fascinating and you know it's such I think it is quite a recognizable style I think lots of people nowadays would like listening to you describe it and I have been to um, that room at the V&A and it's um, gorgeous I wanted to dwell for a moment on um, you mentioned the the division of women's work and men's work on this and the drawers of this desk and I was thinking while I was reading the book was this something that struck um, William Morris and his his friends the people the men he was working with that they had been trying their hand at painting and at architecture uh, and now they were making a kind of transition into a more domestic sphere. They were making things for the home, which obviously traditionally is very much seen as a, as a woman's job or a woman's sphere. Were they aware of this gendered aspect of it? Was that Was that a kind of a conscious, you know, did they have to consciously think, no, we're doing this in a masculine way or it's different to what women do when they're in the home? I think they were conscious that this is a, I mean, the, the 1850s, 1860s is a really uh, buzzing time for uh, for commercial designers because there is a, a new uh, focus on interior design, which is coming from, um, you know, after the 1851 exhibition, but then you start to get magazines that like, you know, um, that, that are writing often for women about how you design your interior, what you need to spend money on, how you can do it at home, you know, DIY projects. And these are often targeted at women. So yes, there is a sense that they, that Morris and company are having to sell to the wives first and then, you know, and then explaining to the husbands why you're having, you know, a whole new set of wallpaper, why you're having these new cushions and curtains put in. But it is very much, you know, even in the 1850s, 1860s, women's roles as, as the kind of arbiter of taste is becoming much more 
clear and professionalized, you know, as with people as, who are writing about it, who are who are even setting up as interior designers themselves. Mm. Thank you for explaining that so well. It's um, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Um, I just remembered as well about um, that that engagement with um, interiors. I, I just wanted to dwell on a little bit because um, in the book you write about the the painting that um, William Morris did of Jane as um, La Belle Isolde, and you can I'll put a picture of it on the website so um, anyone who's listening can go and have a look. And you kind of write how he. He struggles to get real life out of her, that she appears slightly kind of muted compared to other paintings that, say, Rossetti did of her. But the thing that's so striking about that painting, or certainly I found so striking about it when I was looking at it, is the the room she's in. You know, the like the, the textures and the materials and the colours and the details of the room jump out immediately. It's like you look at that painting and you know it's by William Morris and you think, well, of course, that here is a man who understands, you know, the importance of making it the inside of a home beautiful it's really striking anyway I just wanted to yeah. ask you a bit about that yes I mean La Belle Isolt that this painting which he, he made of, of Jane before they married it is the only finished um, oil painting that, that William Morris did um, he, he's he's placed Jane there standing um, in this amazing kind of white robe with pink um, embroidery or, or printing on it and she's sort of fastening her belt and looking in a mirror um, and she's just got out of bed and the bed is very rumpled and there's a dog sleeping in the bed, um, a little kind of whippet or greyhound. Um, and there's a bowl of, of oranges. And so some of these elements are a tribute to uh, a very famous painting that he got to know in National Gallery, The Arnolfini Marriage by Van Eyck. So he's kind of taken elements of that room in The Arnolfini Marriage, the dog and the oranges and the bed and put them in in this room that Jane is standing in in the painting. But there's so many other elements which, you know, he you know, they don't exist in real life. They just exist in pictures and in his head. And he is putting them there. So there's um, on, on the dressing table, there's a, 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 a cloth which is you can see it's embroidered in gold thread with pomegranates. And on top of that, there's a, a linen cloth which you can see how it's woven. He's painted its weave this sort of diamond pattern weave. And then you can see it's also been folded. It's still got the, the creases in it. And he is thinking so intensely about the materiality of these textiles. You can feel the tufts of the carpet. You know how things have been stitched. And some of them, you know, he did uh, he did have access to a collection of, of textiles that his, his architectural mentor, uh, George Edmund Street, owned. So he had seen some of these things. But others he'd only ever encountered in pictures himself. And yet he... He wanted us to be able to kind of touch them. And I think that's why he's so he's so adept at designing textiles, because he knows how they fall. He knows what um, what what weight of textile will work for what sort of design. He wants, you know, he wants fabric hanging on the walls in, in these wonderful folds and drapes. And so he designs to make those things, you know, move and and we want, you know, the warmth of those textiles is, is so evident in this painting. And that's something he then carries on into his his own design life. I wanted to ask you a bit about uh, what they were influenced by. You've, you've touched on it a bit in the conversation so far um, about the medieval and the Gothic. But could you tell us a bit more about what does that actually mean for people who aren't um, literate in, in those kind of um, art history terms? What did it mean that they were inspired by medieval art and by the Gothic? 
So even as very young men, when they were studying in Oxford, uh, William Morris and his friend Burne Jones were, were surrounded by Gothic objects, by Gothic buildings. You know, they would go to Merton College Chapel, which is this, you know, has this beautiful uh, stained glass windows and, you know, very, you know, all the pointed arches, the tracery in the windows. Um, they would go to New College Cloisters, which again, you know, the, it's it's a sense of, of shadowy age and using stone, which is carved into these beautiful uh, flowers and, and, and foliage. So one of the things that's very strong in the Gothic and comes through again in the Gothic revival in the 19th century is a love of nature. Um, so you can almost imagine um, if you're standing inside a cathedral that the the, the, the tree trunks in the columns around you and they're sort of soaring above you and then they kind of meet above your head. There's a sense of, uh, of using that kind of um, the springiness of uh, growing things in your designs that will sell in the, in the Victorian world. If you've been enjoying this episode and want to learn more from Suzanne, then joining one of the trips she's leading for our sponsors, Ace Cultural Tours, might be the perfect way to delve fully into art history. Ace runs trips around the globe on a variety of themes, from art and architecture to music and nature, and groups are always hosted by experts in their fields. In September of this year, Suzanne will be leading a tour to the beautiful south of France to explore how the climate and landscapes of the Côte d'Azur inspired generations of artists and creatives. Visits will include Matisse's celebrated Chapelle du Rosaire, Jean Cocteau's Salle de Mariage at Menton, and the elegant pink Villa Afrisi de Rothschild, with its stunning array of decorative arts. For the summer of 2023, Ace are really excited to be launching a brand new departure with Suzanne at the helm, taking in the art and breathtaking landscapes of Switzerland. So to find out more about any of these tours with the lovely Suzanne, as well as many other itineraries offered by Ace, please do visit their website at www.aceculturaltours.co.uk or speak to their sales team on 01223-841055. Suzanne, where are we going to go for our third and final scene in 1862? I'm going to go a little bit further back, actually. I'm going to go back to February 1862 because uh, we have this vision of Red House being a wonderful um, kind of corporate space where, or communal space where artists come and go and they sit and stitch and make poetry and paint on the walls. But in February 1862, this group has suffered a, a really severe bereavement. Um, uh, Elizabeth Siddle uh, dies in February 1862 and she is the wife of uh, Rossetti. She's been part of this group. She was there um, when Jane was having her first child in 1861 and, and, and now she's absent when, when May Morris is born. Elizabeth Siddle herself um, seems to have died from a drug overdose. She had become addicted to an opiate, um, uh, laudanum, and she was taking increasingly sort of large doses of it. And uh, one evening, she'd been out for dinner with Rossetti. Uh, she said she didn't feel great. She went home again. Rossetti then went out again. And when he came back, he found her dying, uh, having taken, yes, an overdose of laudanum. Uh, and there were various sort of descriptions of what happened, whether it was a suicide, whether it was suicide or an accident. And there's a lot of sort of legends that have grown up around um, her life and death. But I think for me, it also, it, it, you know, it, 
it makes you think about the the impact on the other women in the circle because it was such a a shock and a loss to to their group yeah it's a really it's a really powerful moment and you can tell that it shifts the dynamic in the group or at least that's how you you write about it in the book um and elizabeth siddle as well um is she's the model that is um for the famous uh, ophelia painting that's right isn't it that's right yes so elizabeth siddle herself is a painter that's why she starts modeling is because she wants access to a painter studio she is uh, working class she uh, her father runs a shop um, and she seems to have been discovered if you can put it that way uh, when she's working in a shop possibly as a milliner um, and she becomes a model um, for one of uh, Gabriel Rossetti's circle, um, young man called Walter Howell Deverell, seems to have kind of picked her up. Um, but she very quickly becomes a, a model just for Rossetti. And in his studio, in Rossetti's studio, she also learns how to, you know, how to use her skills. She wants to paint. She wants to get training. Um, she, she has access to materials and, and learns techniques. So she, is, she makes a, um, a series mostly of watercolours often on um, Arthurian, again, Arthurian themes. But what I like about her drawings and watercolours is, again, they they step to a different part of the room, as it were. They're looking at things from a, a woman's perspective. So her, she does a drawing, for example, of the Lady of Shalott, which is a Tennyson poem. And her lady is not, her lady is very spiky, is very uh, agitated. Um, there's no sort of voluptuousness in her drawings it's all there's a lot of um there's a lot of witchcraft there's a lot of uh, of women's alternative ways of w- which women might have power um uh there's there's a lot of again trafficking between the you know the, this world and the next world um a sense of these things are very close um and taking the same you know the same basic stories that the rossetti and his friends were taking but just giving them a an edge um, and she she really struggles with Rossetti because he 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 doesn't want to marry her. Um, and so they're in a, a relationship. She's sometimes living with him, sometimes not. Sometimes she goes away to, to train. She goes to Sheffield uh, and gets some sort of more uh, artistic training there. She's taken up by John Ruskin, who thinks who actually thinks she's a genius. I mean, Elizabeth Siddle is this kind of this woman that people apply lots of titles to or, or, or in the same way as Jane you know we we know their faces but actually how do we encounter them personally Elizabeth Siddle gets sort of labeled as a as a fragile genius by somebody like John Ruskin he wants her to travel abroad but not work and Elizabeth Siddle really wants to work you know she wants her paintbrushes she wants her her, her work with her so there's this tension there between which we see also in Georgie Byrne Jones's life she wants to you know, she wants to make prints. She wants to do printmaking. And again, that has to be set aside for the family. Jane Morris, she's an amazing seamstress uh, and, you know, embroideress. But a lot of the time she's having to set that aside. So Elizabeth Siddle, you know, is, is in her life and in her death, we see those, those dreadful tensions. And in her poetry as well, we see how she really struggled to to know what, whether to stick with Gabriel Rossetti. And he doesn't marry her until she's basically so so unwell that he's worried she's going to die. It's so good to hear more about her life because for that exact reason, again, she was somebody who, when I looked up and I said, oh, it's that painting, um, such a famous painting um, of... Uh, and it is Ophelia, isn't yes, it? Yes, that's in the, right. Lying in the river. It's so good to hear about the woman behind that face, yes. basically. 
And I think it also um, highlights very often the women have been labelled again, you know, the, apply, this label applied to them that they are fragile, that they are unwell uh, and to Jane as well. And we know that Jane suffered from some chronic, which she called it backache. It could be gynecological. We're not sure. But because of the experience she'd seen with Elizabeth Siddle, she refuses to take opiates. So she has to kind of sit through the pain and make adjustments to her life, to the way she travels, the way she looks after the children to manage the pain because she won't go down that kind of pain-killing route because of what happened to Elizabeth Siddle. But we tend to focus so much on the kind of these poor women, aren't they unwell all the time, when actually often the men, you know, Edward Byrne-Jones, you know, was, was unwell and made use of that to kind of, you know, to, he needed to be looked after very often by, um, by people. Uh, William Morris himself, we think of him as this very sturdy, very robust figure. In fact, you know, he was quite often bedridden because he had rheumatic fever um, so Jane is having to kind of power through often you know holding things together um, despite her own kind of feeling unwell um, so we I think it when you look at, at, at the women in, in this group it does mean that you sort of change your perspective on we, we're so focused on their bodies you know what the, what their bodies are uh, that you know what they look like and their uh, and and how frail they are. When actually there's so much else going on, and with and with Elizabeth Siddle, we see you know she wanted to be a poet, um, although she, her poetry wasn't published in her own lifetime. She wanted to be an exhibited artist, and her pictures were all around their 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 flat when she was married to Rossetti. That is what was on the walls was 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 Elizabeth Siddle's pictures. But she, um, while her friends were all having babies. Um, she had a stillborn child in the summer of 1861. And I think that was an inexpressible grief for her and something that Rossetti also never really got over. He, he, he never had any children and he, he refers back to that, um, the loss of that child and then the loss of, of his wife, of Elizabeth, because that, that depression seems to have been the, the, the trigger for for you know, taking more and more of the of the laudanum and and finally her death, it does it does change the the relationships within the within this kind of group. And and later on, the, the Philip Webb in particular talks about this group of friends as a family. That you know, the the Burn Joneses, the Morrises, and Rossetti, they feel like family. And I think that explains a lot of the the later part of their story when um, Jane and Rossetti become very close after Elizabeth Siddle's death. Um, that it's almost as if they they have grown up together, and so they they have a, a sympathy with each other. Definitely, I wanted to ask you a bit about um, the fact that a lot of the women in this group, or most of the women in this group, come from working class backgrounds, and the men they're married to don't. What what are we to make of that? If there is anything to make of it, um, was there? Yeah, I found I thought it was an interesting pattern. <sighs> In each case, the way in which they, the, they, they kind of got together, the couples got together is different. And I think it, it shows that um, perhaps in the early days, uh, certainly for Burne Jones, um, I mean, his, his wife was, was middle class and very respectable. She was the daughter of a Methodist minister. But someone like uh, Ford Maddox Brown, who married Emma, um, and Rossetti, who married Elizabeth Siddle, in the early days, they didn't have much money. The men didn't have much money. They might have you know, class, as it were, but they they didn't have many funds, so they weren't necessarily a good catch for um, a middle class woman. They couldn't 
you know, they, they were living in reduced circumstances because of their choice of, uh, of profession. That wasn't the case with William Morris. And I think, I think it's very important, and I'm not sure whether I put it in the book, I think it's very important that he and Jane had a long engagement, that uh, they were engaged for at least a year, because it proved to everybody that Jane wasn't pregnant, that this was not just sort of um, a, a marriage of necessity, that it was a marriage of choice. Um, and I think for, for many of the men in this circle, uh, their way of life, their way of thinking was so unconventional that uh, from the from the outset that actually um, working class women could kind of accept that 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 sense of pl- of playfulness of uh, of instability perhaps of moving of, of m- mobility and I think you also have to remember this is an, a, a society that's incredibly socially mobile you know, people are going up and down all the time there is no we tend to think of the Victorians as having these very rigid class structures, and they absolutely didn't. The reason they go on about it so much is because things are slippery, because people can lose their status very quickly or can gain status very quickly. And so that's one of the reasons why there are all these magazines explaining to young people how to run a household, how to cook a dinner, how to look after your servants, because this is new. They, they haven't had to do it before. So in a way, it, it does look strange uh, that, you know, there are all these, these couples where there's somebody with more money and somebody with less money. But I think it was happening in other parts of society. It's just that we happen to, to focus on this group. And also, in some cases, as in the case of Emma Maddox-Brown, she started as a model, she became pregnant, and then afterwards um, they married. So in that case, you know, you do feel that this was a this was a marriage of love, but it was also a marriage of necessity. Whereas with William Morris and Jane Burden, this was a marriage of of care. I mean, they were both quite shy, quite reticent, I think, but a sense that they they did understand each other. They understood that there were things they could do together, which other people. I mean, Jane would never get another opportunity like this. Jane could never expect to meet somebody who loved um, art and poetry. And showed that to her, and gave her that opportunity to to be with people who had travelled, to be with people who had a vision. Morris was also really bad with girls. He was not a charmer. He was not. I mean, the, the, his friends are constantly making fun of him. He can't flirt. He can't woo young women. So to have a young woman here who really did pay attention to him, who who seemed to care for him, who wanted to be part of his world, you know, again, he might not get another chance like that. One question that I really wanted to ask you um, before we head back into the present and um, just before you tell us what memento you're going to bring back from 1862. Throughout our conversation, we've spoken a lot about um, writing history from women's perspective. And I wanted to um, put um, a quote to you from a historian who I admire very much, Amanda Vickery. Um, It's a quote that I've thought about many, many times when I think about women's history. And she writes in her book, um, The Gentleman's Daughter, about the lives of Georgian women. We shouldn't we shouldn't berate Georgian women for failing to perceive their own limitations. And she's writing about how, you know, it would be wonderful. It'd be exciting if we found a diary entry from some Georgian woman saying, God, it's just so unfair being a woman. And I really wish these men would like let me you know, give me reproductive rights and <laughs> all of this type of stuff. But obviously they don't. And that doesn't mean... And she basically makes the argument that we we need to take them at their own words. And if they say that they're happy with how things are, then or they don't seem to be too bothered by these certain inequities and in how men and women are treated in society, then we should believe them. 
And um, it was something I was thinking about when I was reading your book, because you're, like I said at the beginning, you're always probing the reader to consider what things were like from Jane's perspective or from any of the women in their circle's perspective. So what do you make of this idea? How much can we read between the lines when we're writing about women's history? Well, certainly Jane Morris herself says that she doesn't think there should be a special record of her, you know, that she hasn't done any special work, she thinks. And to a certain extent, that's true. You know, she has maintained the role that you know, Morris expected of her running the household, having the children, looking after them, um, you know, doing the textiles side of the business, you know, not attempting to do architecture, but, you know, stitching is a woman's role. So I think from her point of view, she did fulfil the expectations of, of, of a Victorian wife. But then, of course, she does push the boundaries by having affairs. Um, you know, she does, which, again, must not have been particularly unusual but it's just we know about this because because of Rossetti's letters to her because William Morris enables her to spend time with Rossetti at Kelmscott Manor uh, and and you know and the and the close friends know about it so she is able to kind of express herself express her femininity her desires her her hopes um, through these relationships with with Rossetti and then with later on with the the other poet Wilfred Scarwin Blunt um, you know, and, and after Morris dies, she goes to Egypt with Blunt um, and his wife. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a, they're no longer in, a, in an intimate relationship, but she, she has this opportunity to travel. And for me, it's that sense that she is, because of her background, because she is, um, she is coming from a, a place where she never expected this to be possible. She actually does try and do more than a middle-class woman might want to do because she she has traveled so far from her, her beginnings. Um, but I think that, uh, and I have talked to various people about, about Jane and they said, well, she was only doing what everyone expected her to do. And I said, well, that's right, but, but she was not born to that. And she was doing everything that people expected her to do because she learned that. She transformed herself from a servant to a hostess. She transformed herself from a gangly woman who just didn't feel comfortable in her own skin to a woman who we know her face because she is so beautiful, because she can hold these poses, because she looks like a goddess. So it was she in herself, it, you know, she she embodied this amazing transformation in herself. And I suppose for me, that is what I wanted to celebrate in the book, that, yes, she was doing the, you know, this, this great job as a wife and mother and, 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 you know, going on holiday with someone like Rosalind Howard, who, you know, whose other house was Castle Howard, you know, she has this ability to, to transcend her original expectations. And I, I wanted to understand, and it's, it's not easy. I mean, she still, she still is quite reticent in places. There are lots of things I don't know about Jane. And I think that's okay because, you know, we all have corners of our lives where, we keep things quiet. But I think in the past, her reticence has been seen as, um, you know, as antagonistic. You know, she was hiding things. She was, um, you know, she was seductive, you know, all of those things. And I, I haven't found evidence of that at all. I think she was a loyal friend. I think that she and Morris had a great marriage, which they kept going, but it wasn't an easy marriage. You know, her, her, her older daughter, Jenny, was very unwell from the age of 15, and they were constantly... You know, Jane was a carer for her daughter, constant carer for her daughter. Even if Jane wasn't personally with her, she had to be looking, you know, sure that Jenny was safe because she had epilepsy, sure that Jenny had somebody 
with her all the time. So there are all these tensions and yet the Morris family comes through it. And I think that is, you know, it's a story of a marriage and uh, as much as anything, and a story of this, this woman just seizing an opportunity, this sort of chink that opens up for her and absolutely going for it. You know, I want to learn French. I want to learn the mandolin. I want to travel to Italy. I want to, you know, go on holiday with these people. Why not? That is the great joy of, of getting to know somebody like Jane Morris. Well, it's been a pleasure to get to know her with you and you've told her story and given us a taste of who she was and her relationship with William and their whole world so vividly, so beautifully. So thank you. Um, Before we go back to the present, you are allowed to bring back a memento from 1862. So what memento would you like to bring? Well, this is hard because it would be lovely to have a piece of Jane's embroidery because that is what she's so skilled at. But there is one thing that I think really needs to be saved from that. And um, that is the book of poems, a manuscript book of poems that Rossetti had made um, up until 1862. And he put that in Elizabeth Siddle's grave and then covered covered her over. So that, that manuscript was, was there in the grave with her on top of her coffin. And that was, you know, it's that manuscript I want to bring back because seven years later, uh, Rossetti was so, so concerned that he'd lost all these poems that he had Elizabeth Siddle exhumed, he had her dug up, and the poems were were, um, were were brought back to him so that he could then publish them. But you know, from the moment he did it, he realised that was a mistake. He should never have buried those poems with 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 Elizabeth Siddle. And he, you know, he he told Jane they were very close. He told Jane that what he was going to do in 1869. Um, you know, it was all done properly through the church, but. I wish they'd been able to leave Elizabeth Siddle alone and not have to dig up those poems. So yes, that's the thing I bring back is is that manuscript. Yeah, that's a really, that's a great one because I feel like in some ways it encapsulates some of the different things we've been talking about in this conversation, some of the beautiful and artistic, but also sad and kind of haunting as well. It feels like it encapsulates all of those. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for talking to me on Travels Through Time. It's been such a pleasure. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. That was me, Artemis Irvin, speaking to Suzanne Fagence-Cooper about her wonderful new book, How We Might Live, At Home with Jane and William Morris, which is published by Quercus and is available to buy now. This is the last episode of season five, so thank you so much to everyone for listening to us from last September. Thank you in particular to Ace Cultural Tours and Unseen Histories for supporting us. We'll be back very soon. But until then, have an amazing summer. Goodbye.